Stephen Harmison with a slower ball. One of the great balls. That's a big hit. That's going all the way. Robert Sandals comes to the pick. That's on the roof. The band to go. Welcome back to the Top Edge podcast for another week. It's been a pretty busy one, especially in women's cricket. Uh, this week, once again, I'm joined by the co-host of probably one of the top 10 uh, football podcasts in this country. That is Callum. Callum, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks. Not too bad. Thanks. Thanks for the um, the half plug of the Australian World Cup podcast. Um, go ahead and listen to that if you feel inclined to. But if you're listening to this, listen to the end of this because this is good too. <laughs> I think you need a plug from this show. That's for sure. That thing's going gangbusters. Uh, my cricket from the weekend, as we go over every week, uh, a good win again. We only had nine players, which is unfortunate, but uh, a win is a win. Uh, I made 31. We chased down 243 in 45 overs. So uh, some pretty good hitting around. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, solid, solid 30, you know. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll hold you to the T20 standards and say that 30 is a job well done. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, not nine guys, you know, that's, um, it's pretty, pretty good effort considering the gaps in the field. Yeah, that's right. It's always a bit demoralizing when you don't have 11 out there. I did hit a six over mid-wicket though, so that's always fun. Um, in bad news though, in the, in the grade below us, there was a guy that, uh, he was walking back to his run up and then he's had a stroke on the field and then he's died. So, um, we got that email through last night and that was, yeah, they, they just had to obviously cancel the games, but, um, yeah, not good. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, we'll leave that there, though. We'll move on to the big uh, news from the week, and that's obviously the WBBL. The final was played yesterday. Uh, my strikers got over the top of the Sixers, who were – look, they played well, but with the bat, they were pretty average, and that's kind of their strength, and uh, it just it wasn't quite good enough. So the strikers posted 147 for five. Uh, DeAndre Dodden, really the, the key there, with 52 from 37. For a little while there, you know, the, the openers were going pretty slowly, like Wolvart. Uh, going at less than a run of ball. It looked like the strikers are going to be posting a, a 120 total, but obviously Dodden's probably one of the strongest players in the tournament and managed to, to push the uh, push the run rate up there. And then for the Sixers, no one really got going. To be honest, the Sixers, the scorecard's pretty flattered by uh, 34 from 17 from Maitland Brown at the end. By then, you know, most of the batters are out. The game was pretty much over. Yeah, I mean... It didn't feel completely over, though, with the boundaries that Maitland Brown was hitting. And um, Maitland Brown was brought in specifically to play that role of the um, the back-end hitter and the finisher and that sort of thing. But it was just too much to um, to deal with at the end. And, um, yeah, it was really um, – it was a game of momentum. Um, I know you mentioned how um, Katie Mack and Walvart were going quite slow to start with. But I think it was the kind of wicket where you needed to go slow if you wanted to get in. Um, it's quite bouncy and um, it was kind of um, it wasn't as batting conducive as North Sydney wickets usually are yeah. um, so you know Mac did well to get her 31 she stepped on her own um, stumps unfortunately so she didn't get to move along there um, but you know they, they were none out through the power play Sydney were four out through the power play yeah. and um, yeah it was just kind of it was um, the momentum played perfectly for the strikers as the game went around and it played basically you know as bad as it could for the sixes yeah pretty much the the strikers bowlers obviously been their strength through the whole tournament darcy brown's been a little bit expensive in games but but yesterday two for 15 from four overs pretty much perfect amanda jade wellington was, was expensive her three overs going for 30 but every bowler took wickets 
DeAndre Dodd chipped in with two as well and, and shoot obviously really good at the top swinging that ball around uh, against that that bowling lineup it's it's really difficult to to get going and if you lose four in the power play it's pretty much over by then and and the sixes yeah they're on the back foot from pretty much the beginning of that that chase yeah for sure yeah it was a shame not to see um you know Perry or Healy or someone like that go on but um you know there, there was still some excitement in the innings um Eccleston had a couple of decent hits before she got out um Maitland Brown looked really good and um you know it's 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 something to build on especially considering we had predicted the Sixers wouldn't make the finals this season so you know they've well exceeded our expectations and um they'll be hoping to to you know bring momentum into the next WBBL. Absolutely. Yeah. Susie Bates there as well. 10 from 17 balls at the top innings. You do, it's just like a handbrake, uh, you know, with Healy there. You really have to be scoring at a runner ball to allow Healy to get into then you know, push forward later on the innings. That, that just didn't happen. But overall, uh, just a, a wonderful event for women's cricket, as Elise Perry kind of alluded to in her speech afterwards. Uh, people seemed pretty happy with, with what she had to say, even though uh, the team didn't get the win. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Elise Perry is a natural leader. We've spoken about it a few times. You know, it doesn't matter if she's in form or not. She she always makes, you know, just she says the right things at the right times, and um, she's got excellent body language regardless of what the situation is. And um, yeah, she's just kind of a natural leader, not just for the Sixers, um, but just for Australian cricket as a whole. Um, which I suppose kind of makes it all the more surprising that she wasn't the one named captain of the um. Australian team in Lang's absence, but you know, that's okay. They, I think they did that in light of she maybe won't be playing every game, whereas Healy is very entrenched in that spot. Um, but yeah, no, nah, it was it was really, really good. Um, it was a really good spectacle, actually, the final. You know, there was pretty good crowd, there was good energy, and um, I thought it was broadcast quite well too. So um, you know, um the WBBL is growing more and more each season. And um this I think um was a good way to cap off what was a really, really good season. Uh, let's have a look at how the strikers got to the final. Though obviously the Sixers were straight in after finishing first on the ladder, uh, so they had to beat the, the Heat obviously, and and they did that in what was really a classic run chase. Uh, chase down 154 with two balls to go, 45 by Bridget Patterson off just 26 balls. Uh, it, it got really tight towards the end there, but the strikers managed to, you know, hit a couple of boundaries in that last over, and, and that really made the difference. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, that one really did go down to the wire. That one definitely felt closer than the um, final because it was. And um, basically, uh, yeah, it came came right down to the end. But nerves of steel from the strikers, they they got through. They um, got through in the nick of time, um, as you'd say. And um, yeah, it was it was actually an absolute classic. You know, um, that was the kind of match that you maybe wanted the final to be. You know, just the way it played out and the drama and the, you know, the Heat were kind of looking shaky at points, but they did well to get to their total. And then they, they bowled pretty well, but then they kind of looked shaky a little bit near the end. And yeah, it was just really, it was really, really good cricket and really good to watch. Absolutely, that was an excellent innings by Bridget Patterson as well. I think she should be on Australian selectors' radars as well. That's the kind of innings that would get you into the Australian team, but that's not the case here. Um, the Strikers had to get on a plane at 6am the next morning, so they finished their game. I think it finished probably at 11 o'clock. It was pretty late by the time uh, by the time they wrapped up, and then obviously they got stuff to do. So it was like three hours of sleep to get to Sydney. Uh, so not ideal preparation for the final, but obviously didn't affect them too much. They managed to get the win. No, I guess um, adrenaline can do a lot for you. And when you're in a final and you've been in a bunch of finals and haven't won it as the strikers have, then, you know, there's probably that little bit more of extra motivation. Yeah, absolutely. So these players now, obviously, most of them go back to the WNCL, uh, back to their states for oh, states and Canberra uh, for that 50 over competition. But the T20I squad was also picked this week. Uh, Alyssa Healy, obviously the captain, as you mentioned earlier there. 
Uh, three people I want to point out, though. The first one's Tali McGrath. She's got the vice captaincy. Uh, she's still pretty young. Obviously, captain the strikers for that win, but uh, an interesting choice for me. Obviously, probably uh, looking at her for future leadership positions, I would have thought. I think that's probably the idea. The other one's Phoebe Litchfield, who's, what, 12 years old now? Um, she's, <laughs> she obviously had a great WBBL uh, and has re- been rewarded with Australian selection, which is good. She's, you know, she's probably a 15-year player uh, for Australia. And her, yeah, her batting is incredible to watch. Uh, and then Kim Garth, who used to play for Ireland. Uh, so, you know, kind of a Tim David situation here. Uh, came from an associate country and then has moved to play for Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was quite surprised to see Garth included, but I'm quite happy because she's a really good bowler. Um, really, really helpful player, um, especially if we we choose to kind of go with more experimental lineups with kind of what, what they'll see is the opportunity to kind of change the lineup a bit. Um, in light of Lang not being there, Haynes retiring and that sort of thing. Um, I also want to quickly mention um, congratulations on a great career to Nicole Bolton, who played her final game in the uh, WBBL final. Um, she put on a pretty good performance actually as well with the bat and with ball. Um, so, you know, it was a good way to go out. And um, yeah, so, you know, looking at, at the selections um, that you mentioned in particular, um, Litchfield, I don't know if she's going to play, but I think it's great having her in and around that, um, that system just to get her, you know, acclimated to kind of, what her teammates are like, what the environment is, how training goes, that sort of thing. And um, like you mentioned, she's going to be a huge, huge feature for the um, Australian team as it goes along. And um, she was the strongest player on what was admittedly a, a weak Thunder team, but um, it was good to see her efforts rewarded. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, she's going she's gonna to be a gun. The, interesting for me, though, we've got a tour to India. That's what this squad is for. Um, I don't know why we keep going overseas during the height of Australian summer. doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and it, I think it just proves how strong uh, Indian cricket is that they can make Australia fly out there, you know, during what is the best part of the Australian summer. Yeah, it's interesting. You think that they might be interested in them coming over here because, you mm. know, the conditions may be better and that sort of thing. But, I mean, look, I mean, Indian winter is basically the equivalent of Australian summer in terms of temperatures and that sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, it depends on on the location, of course. But, you know, I, I would guess they play in the warmer climates um, for, for that tour. And, um, you know, um, as you mentioned, it's all about out the, um, the Indian cricket board and the, uh, the kind of sway and power they've got. And, um, especially with the women's IPL actually mm-hmm. being a thing now, um, getting women's cricket displayed in kind of, you know, a prime position in India. Um, there was probably a level of that logic to it as well. Yeah. And for, for these Australian players, you know, there could be a nice little check coming their way if they perform in this series. That uh, I'm not quite sure how, uh, like what kind of money the women's IPL is going to offer, but I'm sure it's going to be more than the WBBL, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, a nice little check coming their way. Uh, but we'll take a short break and then we'll get into the Australian West Indies uh, test preview. So the Australian and West Indies tests are starting this week. Uh, first test is on a Wednesday in Perth, which is uh, just doesn't make any sense to me. Like it's if you get to Saturday, it's going to be day four, and you know this West Indies team they're not the strongest. They put up a good performance against the Prime Minister's eleven, but you know Pat Cummins and Mitchell Starkham, uh, Optus Stadium is a is a different case, I would say. Yeah, it's a um a whole different kettle of fish to um you know use one of those old <laughs> colloquialisms, and um it it really is when you know you have basically the two best test bowlers coming at you for, you know, 10, 20 over spells. Um, but, you know, it's a good opportunity for the West Indies to prove that they, that they can 
they can compete at test level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if they manage to even just get a draw in um, this series, um, they, they'd feel like they have huge momentum. And I feel like Australia would be disappointed. You know, Australia will look at this and look at it as an opportunity to sweep and look at it as an opportunity to show that Australia is a dominant test team after not making the test championship last time around. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's um, there's definitely some some stakes in terms of the, the psychological impact. It's also the opening of the test summer, which, um, you know, Australians love. Um, I know you and I are very excited to um, sit down and watch cricket for hours. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, um, it's actually quite an exciting series and I'm actually tentatively looking forward. Yeah, absolutely. It's just good to see uh, different teams out here that, you know, aren't India and England who seem to come every, every year. So uh, I think the West Indies will put on a good show. Um, the Australian eleven looks pretty set, right? We, we know who's going to play. It'll be Boland and Harris who miss out with, with bat and ball. They'll be 12 and 13. Uh, but the West Indies, I think there could be a change at the top of the order. Chanda Bull, who we spoke about last week, uh, obviously son of, hit a century and then a 50 in the Prime Minister's 11 game. And uh, I think he's pushed his case enough in this tour uh, to get selected for that first test. Yeah, I saw a video of um, Chanderpaul Senior and Chanderpaul mm. Junior batting side by side, and um, it was kind of uncanny just the way they conducted themselves. Mm. Like not even just their technique, but just the way that they like set up at the crease, and you know that they get ready to play, and you know they they eye the bowler and that sort of thing. And um, yeah, um, he looks like a really nice player actually, and yeah. um, he looks like some someone. It was kind of a hidden gem for West Indies because you know his averages didn't pop out at you. They were good, but they weren't great, and um, you know a lot of it maybe came from his name value, but he's proven that he is actually really quality and there's a reason they selected him in the squad. Yeah, I think he's going to be someone who succeeds more at test level than he did at first class level just because the conditions are probably better and looking at his game in that Prime Minister's 11, uh, it looks like he's got a game more suited for, for bouncier pitches rather than what you get in the West Indies. So I think he's going to be an excellent selection there and will do well. Um, the rest of the West Indies, I'm not too sure about. I think, I think they're going to struggle. Uh, but what are we most excited for coming into this test match? For me, uh, Cam Green, obviously going back to WA for the first time in test cricket, uh, seeing him bowl on that fast, bouncy Optus Stadium track. I think uh, he's going to get plenty of pace and he could be pushing, you know, 145s this summer. I think it would be especially exciting if Australia bowl second um, mm. because then there'll be a bigger crowd in the stadium. Yes. And most of them will probably personally know Cameron Green. <laughs> and as such, it's gonna be gonna be wild. It's gonna be quite an atmosphere. It's gonna be it's gonna be similar to Scott Boland at the MCG kind of atmosphere, you know. Um, so that will be amazing to see. Um Cameron Green, we've spoken about him a few times. He definitely has the quality to be a full-time test bowler if he wants to. The problem is he has the quality to be a full-time test batsman if he wants to. <laughs> it's a good problem to have, but, you know, it's just, just a matter of um, trying to trying to use green to the best of his abilities and that sort of thing. But I think he'll definitely definitely bowl in Perth, and um, hopefully he bowls well. Yes, I hope so. He, I, I'm a little bit worried that if he doesn't get the batting right this summer, uh, he could be moved down the order or we could see him disappear. You know, he still hasn't hit 100 in test cricket yet. I'm not quite sure how long he can hang on to the number six or number five, depending on who, who plays in that other position, without them scoring, you know, big runs. And we haven't seen that from Green yet. Uh, the, the big run, like he's hit a couple of 80s, but those have come, you know, uh, late in the game, nothing really on the line, and he's come out and just smashed the ball around. Uh, we're yet to really see him, you know, dig in and play a big test innings, which we know he can do in first class career, right? He's got, you know, massive scores there. So hopefully we can see that this summer. Uh, in the last five matches between these two teams, Australia won all but all but one, and that was a draw, and none of the wins have come by less than 177 runs or nine wickets. 
So it looks like the West Indies are in a little bit of trouble coming in. Uh, their side is pretty depleted. Obviously, they don't have a lot of the, like the T20 specialists who I think could make a difference in Test cricket, but obviously don't play. Yeah, I mean, if you look at that form guide, you'd be um, you'd you'd be a bold character to try and uh, bet on the West Indies yes. um, after that. But you know, it's cricket; anything can happen. Um, Australia, as we've mentioned a few times on our podcast these last few weeks, is in a bit of a state of flux in terms of its um selection, its team, mm. and that sort of thing. Um, so it's not as as sure a thing as maybe it is on paper. Um, just because of you know Australia you know, on their best days, they are fantastic. They're really good. They can beat anyone, but on their worst days, they can lose to anyone as well. Yes, absolutely. I, I think Australia is going to be massively helped by a big Steve Smith test summer, though. Uh, I think he's scoring the most runs for this series. Uh, most wickets, I think Stark is going to, you know, his extra pace coming uh, left arm over a little bit of a different angle. I think he's going to blast through the West Indies, and then obviously I think Australia will win this series 2-0 just because uh, there's a big gap in quality, um, you know, pretty much in every position. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think it's possible Warner gets top um, run scorer um, just because, you know, everything that's been in the news about him, um, he seems to respond quite well to press noise. And, um, you know, he, he when he gets going the most exciting test player to watch, which is a weird thing to say. And, um, you know, on, on the, the pitches that they're playing at um, seems to suit Warner's game quite well. Mm. And, you know, if he can get a partnership going, or even if he gets a partnership going with Smith, for example, um, he could definitely be the run scorer, but I agree with you about Stark. I think he's, he's in for a, for a big, a big series. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, Warner's a good shout there. He's kind of flagged that this could be his last, his last test summer, um, depending on how things go, might want to finish up with the Ashes. So uh, a, a good last summer would be would be good to see, that's for sure. Uh, we'll move on, though, to Justin Langer. Uh, no surprise there. I think we've talked about him every week, but this week it has really blown up. So Justin Langer went on uh, Will Schofield's podcast, his former AFL player at West Coast. Justin Langer, of course, on the board at West Coast. So uh, a little bit going on there. Uh, Justin Langer essentially said he, he was just going on to answer questions so it's not really his fault um, of like what he answered. That's not really how this works. He knew what was going to be asked when you go on. You're like, uh, you don't talk about this stuff for months and months before and then go on a podcast and think, oh, they're not going to ask me about it, are they? So it's, yeah, a little bit odd. Uh, but a 90-minute chat that was. And for me, the most controversial comment was, obviously, he called uh, like the sources that the media use cowards. And uh, yeah, that just seemed a little bit odd to me. Um, considering Justin Langer also likes using the media a little bit um, to, to push his agenda. Um, as members of the media ourselves, I suppose we're slightly biased there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was odd. It was an odd feeling just in terms of the comments that came out of that podcast and just kind of, you know, it, it, it was really kind of a, he said, she said kind of thing in terms of, you know, Pat Cummins says one thing, Justin Langer says another thing, Osman Kawaja says one thing, gets dropped for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's um, definitely, definitely a contentious point. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right. You know, if he agrees to do a podcast and um, definitely as a feature um, on the podcast as he was then, um, the first question he's going to be asked is not going to be what his coffee order is in the morning, is it? <laughs> he's going to be asked directly about his time as head coach of Australia. And, um, you know, Langer, say what you want about him. He does pride himself on being candid, and he certainly was candid. Yeah, elite honesty. Um, something that wasn't honest, though, I would suggest, is that he he said, uh, like, 
Pat Cummins, there was nothing brutal about his feedback. He's not getting the feedback um, that he was after. And that was in 2021. He was talking about that. So that was you know, right towards the end of the Langer term where it seemed like, well, he's definitely he's got one foot out of the door at this point. You know, he's kind of given the T20 World Cup reins to Andrew McDonald. We all know that, that, you know, Langer was kind of, he was there, but he wasn't doing the job. Um, and then it, it went through the ashes. He was a little bit more involved there, but uh, I think anyone could have coached Australia to an Ashes win last year. England were just uh, were very average. But as you mentioned there, uh, Usman Kawaja. So he, we saw it in the test, right? Everyone watched the test. It was uh, that, that documentary. And, and Langer was told by Kawaja that the players were essentially scared of him, uh, that they're walking on eggshells around him and that he's a bit too intense. And that's not really helping uh, the batters in particular. That was kind of the position that Kawaja was taking. Uh, but, but Langer seemed to suggests that there was no feedback at all um, during that period. So it just seemed a little bit odd there. And then obviously, as you mentioned, Kawaja was dropped and then didn't play for two years until it was absolutely necessary when Travis Head ended up with COVID and there was no other option in the, in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's unfortunate something like that just ended up happening. You know, Kawaja's yeah. the unluckiest Australian cricketer, I think, um, just in yes. terms of how his career's panned out. Um, because, you know... He, he's great at test level. He's a really good test player. So, you know, it's odd that he was out of the team at all throughout his career. But anyways, um, yeah, I think maybe your point about, you know, not receiving feedback versus receiving feedback and ignoring it, that's kind of what the contention is there. So it could have been a case of Justin, Justin Langer feeling that he didn't receive feedback because he literally wasn't receiving it. You know, he, he, he turned the listening off in that particular situation and that sort of thing. But if that's the case, then that's partly on him. You know, if your players have a serious concern and they want to, you know, speak to you about it, you definitely need to receive it. You can't dismiss it. And that's, you know, if Langer is taking this approach of no one told me anything, then he needs to take, take that on board in that you probably ignored or dismissed something quite important. Yeah, I think the big issue, and obviously, like this is Will Schofield's podcast, former AFL player, um, and I think Langer was was leading this team like it was an AFL team, uh, you know, really intense. But the difference is with AFL, you go to training and then you get to go home. Um, where with cricket, it's essentially, uh, I don't want to use the word family, but you're essentially a big group, right? You travel together. You essentially live together for 300 days a year. Um, you need to be a little bit more attentive to what players need, I think, rather than, you know, super intense like an AFL coach is because players really, they're not getting the time off that you get in other sports. Um, you know, it's cricket, cricket, cricket uh, from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's definitely um, cricket coaching is a fine art just because, yeah, um, there's a lot more interpersonal interaction um, between coaches and players in cricket than there is in AFL, like you mentioned, or even even in soccer, like you mentioned, there are some very famous, you know, um, soccer coaches who are known to being very intense. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, the, the reason some certain players were able to cope with certain managers or coaches or anything like that was because, yeah, they went to training. Yeah, it was intense. Yeah, it was intense at games. Then they could go home. They could go to their families, you know, they could, they could you know, go to the gym or whatever if they feel, you know, whatever their coping mechanism is. And um, it, you get a level of that in cricket, but it's not, it's not to the same extent because, like you said, you're always around each other and there's always probably someone who holds an opinion about the coach around you. So, you know, there's um, it's a big kind of mental barrier that you need to sort of negotiate around rather than break through. Yeah, absolutely. And as we know, Langer seems to have a short fuse 
Um, uh, we can all remember when they uh, when cricket.com put the Bangladesh team song on on uh, social media there and, and Langer blew up at the social media team at Cricket Australia. Uh, he's done that a few times in other places. So, yeah, short fuse, um, but he's no longer coaching. He's got a job at uh, Channel 7 doing commentary this year, which I think will be interesting when he gets to the mic. Uh, he's obviously going to be asked about this kind of stuff. Yeah, it will be interesting. Um, hopefully hopefully he's quite good, actually. Um, I, I would hope because he does, you know, there was a reason he was appointed a coach. He does have tactical acumen. Yeah. Um, he knows the game really well and he's got, you know, tons and tons of experience at the highest level. So, you know, I think he would have great insight in terms of what it's like to be a test player and kind of what coaches go through in these sort of um, situations. Um, but yeah, it's just a matter of what they choose to focus on when, you know, he and other broadcasters are in the booth together and what they choose to focus on in terms of the narrative of the match. Yeah, I, I think he's going to have the best insight in the team just because he was there for so long. Uh, but we'll move on to six or out, uh, change things up a little bit. Um, I'll start off with, is a strong bowling lineup more important than a strong batting lineup? And that's kind of based on uh, the Sixers' loss in the WBBL. Um, is it more important is the question. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm going to say no, but they're both equally as important because cricket's a team game. If you don't score runs, you don't win. If you don't take wickets, you don't win. So you can't just select 11 batsmen and hope you bat the game to oblivion because then you won't be able to take the wickets. You can't select 11 bowlers because a lot of them aren't that good at batting. So... Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a balance that needs to be struck. You know, it's, uh, it's certainly important to have good bowlers and it's also certainly important to have good batsmen. So um, at the end of the day, you kind of want to build your team around which personalities work together and how kind of you can build both sides of the innings. You know, like I can put my batting order, I can put this player here, this player here, this player here. And I can build my bowling rotation. I can open with these two. I can have my first change of this, that sort of thing. And if you if you don't trust any player in that process, then it all kind of breaks down. So I think I don't think it's more important, but I think it's equally as important. Yeah, I, th- I think what you're saying there is absolutely correct, and we should definitely have uh, teams of eleven batters play against a team of eleven bowlers. That would be that'd be great fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so my first question is with several retirements, actually, um, in the women's game, um, WBBL especially, um, what do you see changing in the various teams, you know, with Bolton gone from the Sixers, with Haynes gone from Thunder? Um, what do you reckon the team's approach from a management standpoint will be going into WBBL 9? I think specifically at the Thunder and the, the Sixers there, I think they have to replace them with international players of, of good quality just because those two are so important in those teams. Probably Nicole Bolton, a little bit less so than Haynes, but uh, they're, they're so important there that you have to have players coming in that can replace that quality. And just in, unless you're taking uh, like Elise Perry to the Thunder, I don't think you're getting that kind of quality um, in domestic cricket. So if you want to replace Haynes at the top of the order or, or Bolton through the middle and bowling, I think the best thing to do is, is look internationally. Um, and you know, find who can replace those skills exactly the, like exactly the same. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I just don't think that you can replace Haynes or Bolton. Like the Thunder had a bad enough season uh, as it is with Haynes, let alone if they didn't have him replaced it with a you know a seventeen year old kid from from uh, New South Wales. So I think yeah, international players are the, are the way to go forward. 
so this week the West Indies played against the Prime Minister's Eleven in England, played an intra-squad match, you know, uh, England against England Lions. What do you think is better preparation for a test tour? Um, I like the international side playing the quote-unquote B team of the national side that they're touring, um, just because I think it helps them acclimate to the conditions. Um, I think, you know, it gives them it gives them an insight of who they might actually end up be dealing with maybe a few years along. So I don't think it's a futile exercise, you know, because you look at some of those players and the Prime Minister's 11, and we've been talking about, you know, they should be in the team or they should be considered and that sort of thing. Um, the other cricket board's going to look at that and go, yes, I agree. I think we should be prepared for them. So being able to get a first-hand look at them is um, definitely very valuable. Not that there isn't value in having, you know, intra-squad, um, I guess, scrimmages, for lack of a better word. Um, because, you know, you can see, maybe you can shuffle things around and try certain players with certain other players and see if they maybe have better chemistry together, which you wouldn't be able to do if, you know, you're a touring team taking on, you know, a Prime Minister's 11. Um, so there's definitely pros and cons to both approaches, but I personally think the um, the touring team playing the, you know, selected team of the, uh, the host nation um, is of greater value. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. Although... You know, if you're playing an intra-squad match, you get to have 22 or, as England did, 26 players playing to see who's in the best form. Uh, and, you know, you get Rian Ahmed caught up as an 18-year-old leg spinner, uh, caught up in an England team based off it. So I think, yeah, there's definitely benefits for both. But from a from a crowd perspective and uh, what's more entertaining, I think, yeah, you're right. Like an Australia A game is, is much more fun. All right. So um, my following question is... The WBBL finals are comparatively short when you look at finals of various other, you know, tournaments in cricket. Um, IPL, for example, the World Cup is another more recent example. Do you like that better or do you think it should be longer? Yeah, so I reckon uh, more finals is obviously better. I think uh, the way that the Sixers just get through uh, by finishing on top of that is a little bit odd. Um, I have, yeah, more fun. I don't see why any sporting organization would want to have less finals. You know, that's what brings in the biggest crowds. It brings in the most viewers. So I think more finals are better. Um, so I think you mentioned at the IPL there, I'd have one play two, uh, the winner of that go through to the final and then two play three and four and five and that kind of thing. Uh, kind of like the AFL used to do before they went to the, the 16 team structure. Uh, yeah. More finals is definitely more fun. And yeah, I don't think the Sixers necessarily deserve to get through to the finals just because they finished on top of the ladder. Obviously, they won 11 games, but there was other teams who had washed out games, that kind of thing. So really, there's a little bit of weather reliance there. If you're going to pick, uh, you're going to you know, let the Sixers through to the final straight away. Uh, so Glenn Maxwell's obviously broken his leg in that tennis court accident. Uh, he's kind of the face of the big bash over the last few years and really the draw card, especially during COVID. He was kind of that consistent player. Um, so who do you think should become the face of the big bash this year? Look, if you asked me that two two or three years ago, I'd have said Chris Lynn unequivocally. Yeah. Um, but now Lynn may not be playing all that much longer, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, is just the circumstance of how his um, career has panned out. Um, so that's a really good question. I suppose um, the first thing that comes to mind is Finch because he's, you know, Australian T20 captain, captain, well, was captain of the Renegades and that sort of thing. Big hitter, great marketable kind of fellow. Um, so that's a good example. Um, I think... What could be good, but probably somewhat risky, 
is going for one of those international players that's going to be playing the whole tournament um, and use them as kind of what you're franchising them about and use trying to promote it as a, as a whole big international sensation rather than just pure Aussie. Because so I think that could maybe draw some, some more fans um, kind of, you know, th- there's broadcasting across the world, so why not try and appeal to more fans across the world? Yeah, I think the Big Bash really needs to start uh, attacking that Pakistan audience um, because Pakistan players can play in overseas leagues, but Indian players can't. So there's no point targeting India as they've tried to do in the past. Um, and obviously, uh, Pakistan players don't get to play in the IPL either. So it really could be the second league for these uh, Pakistan players who don't get other chances overseas. Uh, and the Hurricanes have obviously done that with Chad Khan and Asif Ali. I think those guys could be the way to go um, this season. Yeah, that's a good call. And that actually um, links quite well to my final question. Um, I was wondering your thoughts on who you think the most impactful international import will be in the BBL. Oh, I think it's Alex Hales. It's Alex Hales every year. Um, he's just so consistent at the top of the order. You know, you've said it before. He's basically just an Australian at this point uh, because he's been here for so long. Uh, obviously, and he's going to be here for most of the tournament, I think. So that'll make a major difference. He's not, you know, jetting out after four games like a Rashid Khan who will also be very good, I think. Um, you know, Liam Livingston's not coming anymore. Laurie Evans isn't coming anymore. Uh, there seems to be players pulling out left right, uh, left and right. So, yeah, I think Alex House is once again uh, going to be the best player internationally. Uh, we'll move on to the domestic cricket and a bit of other news as well. So there's only, it was a little bit slow this week in terms of domestic cricket. Only one March Cup game, and that's currently on. And it's also raining pretty hard, so I'm not seeing a result coming. But Max Bryan is on 88, so close to 100 there. And someone who's kind of fallen away in domestic cricket, obviously does pretty well in the Big Bash, but uh, a young guy that looked like he was set for, you know, Australian representation. Maybe this is the start of that again. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, I think what the problem was with Bryant, and it's a problem we've identified about Australian players, um, Pukowski in particular, is he got too much scrutiny too soon, yep. um, which I think definitely affected... Um, his game from a mental standpoint. I think he, he started playing more restricted, more like, oh, I can't get out because I, I need to perform and that sort of thing. And um, sometimes players can't cope with that level of pressure. Um, but it's it's encouraging to see that he's getting back into form because he is a very talented player. He's a great striker of the ball. I don't think you'll see many opening bat- batsmen who hit it as well as Max Bryant does. Um, so, you know, it's, um, it's good to see him performing again. And um, it's exciting to see him performing again. And it's probably even more of a pain when you think about David Warner not playing in the following test summer, who you're going to pick. <laughs> yeah, that would be an interesting one. Definitely like a like-for-like replacement in terms of the power uh, he could bring at the top of the order. I'm not quite sure he's ready for test cricket, though. Um, we'll see how that goes. I think they're going to go for a more conservative opener um, after Warner, you know, Henry Hunts, that kind of, kind of thing. Uh, for me, I'm going to blame Chris Lynn and the heat on Max Bryant's kind of downfall a little bit. Um, their game was really based on just going out there and smashing the ball from ball one. And I don't necessarily, like Max Bryant can do that, but I don't necessarily think it was the best thing for his game. Um, and, you know, he's kind of moved away from the hit a little bit more and Chris Lean's obviously not there. So maybe that's made a little bit of a difference. Um, in the Shield, though, South Australia played against Queensland, a draw. Um, we, I think we got to the first day of this game in the last episode when South Australia were five for 25. Uh, but Lehman and McSweeney, uh, they batted out the final day for a draw. Yep, you know, um, sometimes we don't like teams playing for draws, but sometimes that's the only only kind of way you can get a result when you're a certain team in the game. 
And so that's what South Australia did, and they got the results. So, you know, respect to them, that's fine. Um, but, yeah, you know, you want teams playing to win, but sometimes there are situations where you have to play to not lose, and that's what they did, and it actually panned out for them. Yeah, I think it's a really good result for South Australia, who in the past would have collapsed at 5 for 25, probably bowled out for 50 and then uh, not do too well in the rest of the game. I think they've they've done pretty well there. The other one, uh, the other Shield game is WA New South Wales, a low-scoring one, but WA managed to win. But for me, the standout, Chris Green, uh, you know, T20 specialist, played in uh, the CPL, played pretty much everywhere in T20 cricket. Uh, He was man of the match. He took nine wickets as well as making 38 on first-class debut. Obviously, a little bit older than you know most debutants in the shield, uh, but I think it's it's interesting they gave him a go. And the question really is for me: What does that mean for Adam Zampa? Where does he get pushed to in the terms in like the ranking of New South Wales spinners, uh, especially if he wants to go to go to India? That's a good question. I think the logic there is Chris Green can bat as well, whereas Adam Zampa is probably going to be batting at ten or eleven. Right, yeah. Zampa's going in purely for his bowling. Um, Chris Green performed very well, like you mentioned. Um, But the other thing and the other risk that Chris Green often carries is that, is his action okay? (laughs) And um, that's something that's quite difficult to look past. You know, we look at various international bowlers that have had strange actions (laughs) in the past. And, um, you know, it's definitely that added level of scrutiny that just makes it a bit more difficult to justify putting them in your team, especially when, you know, you want to put them in the Australian team and Australia is big into reputation and, you know, integrity and stuff like that. And I'm not saying that Chris Green isn't an honest player. It's just a matter of, you know, how people perceive that action and how people perceive the legality of, you know, that kind of bowling. Yeah. There's a reason he wears long sleeves. That's for sure. Uh, we'll move on to the other game. Tasmania beat Victoria, chasing 238 on the final day for victory. Um, a really good win there for Tassie. Jay, uh, Jackson Bird, eight wickets in the match. Jake Doran, who continues to rise. He's taken the gloves now for, for uh, Tasmania with Tim Payne, just not being selected anymore. Uh, and he hit 80 and 40 in that match. And he really seems to be on the rise after debuting in Shield Creator, I think 18 or, or maybe even 17. Uh, and now he's probably 23 or something. And he's, he's really started to rise up the top. Yep, um, Doran's a good example of what we wanted from Max Bryant, someone who was kind of um, protected and um, developed in a way that he could grow, you know. Um, he had, obviously, very strong keepers around him. Um, Tasmania are not scarce of keepers, um, so he could definitely take a few take a few notes from in that regard, and I think he's turning into actually a very nice keeper. And um, just the way you approach batting innings and that sort of thing, I think they just, they let him take his time. They let him sit and watch and see what certain players were doing and what was successful. And um, he's reaping the benefits of it now. Yeah. He's not, he's obviously not the strongest of players. So he bats a little bit slower than other keepers around, especially in that Tasmanian squad. He's not batting like Ben McDermott, is he? Um, But, you know, he's really solid in, in four day cricket and, you know, he's 25, a lot younger than, you know, Carey, uh, who else is there? Josh Inglis is in line, Jimmy Pearson, younger than those guys. So Test Cricket's definitely not out of the out of the question. I mean, other news, we'll go over to England. So the ECB got a £400 million offer, uh, private equity offer to buy 75% of the 100. Um, but it, it seems like all legs are going that way. I know earlier this year, uh, towards the end of the Big Bash season, Osman Kwaja suggested that that's really the only way the Big Bash survives. So... It looks like that's going to be the way of the future. Yeah, yeah. Um, all I can really say about that is it'll be interesting to see how the 100 is presented if that mm-hmm. deal goes through. Um, it's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. 
I'm thinking what, you know, what the ECB could do with it, what yeah. cricket um, as a whole could do with just that level of money, um, maybe outside of India. You know, we think when there's, yeah. mo- when there's money thrown at cricket, it's thrown by India. Um, but yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see what they do, how they invest that money and how the 100 is presented. Yeah, well, what I'd suggest the ECB should do is, is negotiate negotiate that down to a 49% stake so that the ECB still have the control uh, of the competition, which I think is important. You know, they've only had it up and running for three years, so you probably want to see how it's going uh, before you sell it off. But, you know, there's interest there, so that's obviously good for, for England. Um, other England news, Joffrey Archer was back in that game. We mentioned that intra-squad game. Uh, he was bowling quick, apparently quite quick. Uh, he hit Zach Crawley on the helmet. So we've seen uh, Joffrey obviously hit plenty of players in the helmet before. Uh, and Crawley's the latest victim. Yeah, Jofra do what Jofra does. Um, Arch is a very dangerous bowler, and the prospect that he could be back at full strength for England sooner rather than later is scary. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, um, unfortunate for Crawley having to take that knock. Hopefully he's okay. Um, from all accounts, it sounds like he is okay. Um, and, you know, Crawley will, will feel good having played in that intra-squad even after being hit um, because he's playing in the BBL as well so um they'll um there'll be lots of eyes on him because Crawley's been a very contentious player and has been international cricket and that sort of thing but if he comes over here and he does well then you know maybe that could turn things around for him yeah so he's going to be the replacement player for the Hurricanes well shut up Khan is a way for uh what is that an ODI series I believe so that'll be interesting Zach Crawley's a he's a good T20 player I think he's going to do well for the Hurricanes averages 30 to strike rate of 145 so yeah, he'll, he'll be interesting. And it'll be interesting to see where they fit him into that lineup, though. You know, they've got so many good good opening batters. You know, McDermott, Wade, uh, Tim Davids there. Who else have they got? Darcy Short there. So that's probably your top four. Um, and Zach Crawley, he's really an opener, where Shadab Khan is, a, you know, a, he bats seven and bowls. So an interesting selection dilemma for the Hurricanes. I'm sure they'll figure it out. Um, off to India. So India has sacked their entire selection panel after the World Cup uh, with the new job ad saying they want people who can select the best 11 every game and can identify players. Seems pretty obvious that that's what you want from a selector. I'm not sure you really needed that in the uh, in the job description, but uh, it is what it is. And what a, I guess if they're doing a clean out, that means they want to clean out of players as well. But for me, I think it's going to be harder to clean out, you know, an Indian lineup rather than anywhere else in the world just because of the connections that fans have with the team. You know, um, if you want to move Virat Kohli or Rohit Sharma on, I, I think you're going to get plenty of uh, plenty of hit back from the fans. Yep, for sure. Definitely a lot of pushback if there's a high profile Indian player who maybe potentially gets dropped by the new selectors. So yeah, it's um, an interesting time in Indian cricket and an interesting time to be following it. So, you know, if you're an Indian cricket fan or, you know, just a world cricket fan like we are, then um, definitely watch that space and see what happens. Yeah, maybe they just select the guy that hit 277 the other day because that was ridiculous. I, I don't understand how you can hit that many runs in a game, you know, 500 list a game. Uh, I'm not quite sure the quality of the opposition there. I know India has a lot of uh, a lot of first-class teams, so I think there's a, a pretty big gap in quality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, um, like, I guess states are, are the way we can describe them in India, um, and just not all of them necessarily have the same talent development as other ones do, and sometimes you can see results like that. But I think it's good for everyone kind of across the country to, to play and, um, you know, with, with cricket, it's it's about developing talent. And um, if there's talent on a weaker team or something like that, someone will still spot it. There'll be a scout who'll spot it and they'll they'll move the, move the player to the right places for them to try and 
try and be nurtured and succeed and that sort of thing. Yeah, India's obviously a big country and uh, it wasn't until probably 20 years ago that they were picking players from basically outside of the big cities. You know, most of the team came from Mumbai. That's no longer the case and, and it'll be interesting to see how that development affects the national team. Uh, but the last piece of news is Endeavour Hills. So we've mentioned this a few times before, the Endeavour Hills team in uh, sub-district cricket in Victoria. They're, they're the guys that have essentially paid big money to get, you know, uh, who's coming, Chris Gale, and then they've got a bunch of Sri Lankan players coming out. Uh, but this week... The, uh, the guy that's organised this has been charged with essentially stealing $250,000 from his former workplace in order to fund this. So uh, it, there was always questions about, you know, where this big money is coming from for sub-district cricket, which is, you know, a, I wouldn't say it's a low level, but it's a low level compared to where the big money is. Uh, so, yeah, they finally got the answer about where this big money is coming from. And I guess it means that Chris Gale and those players aren't coming out this year. Yeah, yeah. Where did that money come from? It came from his ex-employer's pockets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, it's crazy. It, it was odd when you heard all the stories about all those players being called yeah. and being summoned to come play district cricket and that sort of thing. And you're like, yeah, this is strange. How are they? Obviously, they've they've signed a contract or something to be paid something or anything like that. But where's that money come from, coming from? That sort of thing. You know, you look at cricket clubs and cricket facilities. It can be hard enough to just you know get enough funds to to keep a ground together. You know, and that sort of thing. Um, let alone bring Chris Gale over to play a few games for you. So um yeah um you know I think it's unfortunate for Endeavour Hills um just in light of you know that being how it happened. Yeah. But you know I I guess. I guess there's the perspective of any publicity is good publicity. And, you know, I didn't th- know about the team now. I, I definitely do know about them now. So that's something. Yeah, we can't even get 11 players on the field every week and these guys are playing, paying, you know, Chris Gale to come and play for them. Um, but that's where we'll leave things for the week. Uh, big week in cricket. There's going to be another big one next week with the Test match, probably finished by the time we record. Uh, Callum, where can people find you on social media and importantly, follow the World Cup podcast as well? Yeah, so you can find me uh, at Callum underscore Logie. On Twitter, um, you can find the Australian World Cup podcast at Australian WC Pod on Twitter. And we're also on Instagram. We're across all sorts of social media platforms. So, you know, just look it up, get around it, be good. And um, Rory, where can people find you? Yes, at Rory underscore Dennis on Twitter. That'll, that'll be where you get me. Um, you can follow the podcast at the Top Edge Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Follow Edge of the Crowd literally everywhere it's edge of the crowd pretty much on all the social media you'll find it just type it into google you know how the internet works uh but that's where we'll leave it and we'll see you all next week